Um, it's, it's hard to know how to introduce our speaker today because he, he, he's just so extraordinary. He's done so many incredible things uh, with his life. Some of you would have been here when uh, Paul Cowley came and spoke last time and he talked about very, 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 very tough childhood uh, in, in, in Manchester and, and uh, about uh, prison and uh, all, all of that. But he's not going to talk about that today, slightly different. And I just thought, look at some pictures that gives you, give you some snapshots, literally. So this is Paul, if we can kill the lights as well, just so it's easy to see. This is Paul on top of a very tall, pointy mountain above the clouds. It's even higher than Newland's Corner, to give you some uh, <laughs> grid of reference there. So Paul the Mountaineer, next, next snap. Uh, this is Paul uh, doing triathlon. Um, uh, and uh, looks like he's—I don't know what he's—I don't know what he's doing. But anyway, he's—he's—he's—he's—he's he's, 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 he's wave, waving. That's what we technically in the triathlon world called waving. Uh, next, next shot. Now this is um, this is in a, a, a prison in uh, Lusaka, uh, which is in in, in uh, Zambia, which is so overcrowded that those are the conditions. Is one of the most um, dreadful environments you can imagine. Let's have the next slide. So uh, Paul uh, works with people in prison all around the world, having himself had some of that background. And um, this is, the, they decided to run Alpha in the prison there, in the Saka. And these are all the guys who came on that, on that Alpha. Um, and so here's Paul speaking to them all. Uh, about the Lord Jesus and the hope that we have in him for a new start. Uh, you think that you've got uh, problems. Uh, you know, these guys have got some pretty major challenges, but in Christ they find a new start. Next, next shot. Um, this, <laughs> this is Paul the action man, Paul in the army, uh, responding to a challenge and abseiling off the rock of Gibraltar with his bicycle. Um, because, you, you know, you never know when you're going to need your bicycle. Um, <laughs> And uh, next one, and this is this is Paul uh, receiving uh, the MBE from from uh, Prince Charles for his extraordinary work um, as uh, someone who helps people who are in prison and coming out of prison all around the world uh, with caring for ex-offenders. It's a story of redemption, what Bob Marley would call a redemption song. Uh, here's this guy who grew up with everything against him, ended up in prison, and is now helping thousands of prisoners all around the world. So would you please put your hands together and welcome the Reverend Paul Cowley. Thank you very much. Um, how many of you in here remember this tune? And what you did when you heard it. There's an angel. Come on, help me out here. Come on. Contemplate come on. my fate. Who was there? There were people there. Anyway, that's enough. Enough, 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 enough. People have been fascinated by angels from time immemorial. You can look at books, there's films, there's posters, there's toys. I mean, all the way through history. Great painters have depicted angels in different ways. Some of the grand masters 
and I'm sure you've seen loads of them, but what are they? Where are they? And, and, and what do they do? St. Paul in the Bible gives us a little warning, I think, about angels. In Hebrews 13, the scripture will come up. It says this, Do not forget to entertain, or in some versions, offer hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. What on earth does that mean? Does it mean that everyone we could possibly bump into is an angel? Tricky if it is. Is it a way of making us nice to everybody? Is it a way of stopping us being grumpy to everybody we meet? Is it sort of, um, they're just all over the place, like secret angels checking up on us? In Harrods, my son worked for a short time at Harrods in London, and they have this uh, system there where they have guest shoppers. Uh, and what they do is people like you and me, they, they recruit them, they give them a credit card, and they have to go around and buy things from the different areas in the store. Then what they do then is report back to the senior management on the service that they got. Was it polite? Did they know what they were talking about? Were they helpful? Were they nice? Did they know about the goods and everything like that? And then what they do, they report back to the management on the behavior of that person. And really, depending on what that outcome is, is if you keep your job or you get the sack. Is that what angels are like? Do they assess us how we bump into them and then report back to headquarters? If they do, I'm in serious trouble. I don't know about you, especially driving on the roads. I am in big trouble. But I don't believe the person who penned that scripture meant that. It didn't mean to put us into fear or guilt. Most of my life, I've been a non-Christian. Uh, in fact, two-thirds of my life. And for 17 years of that time, I was in the military, and, and I loved it. Saved my life. And in 91, while I was stationed in Gibraltar, serving with the 3rd Battalion Royal Green Jackets as their PT corpsman, I transferred out the artillery and I joined the Army Physical Training Corps. While I was with them, uh, myself and a, another um, good friend who was also a sergeant like me at the time, were tasked or asked to take 10 soldiers, including, well, and ourselves, 10 soldiers to Mount Kenya on an expedition as, as adventure training. Adventure training in the Army is to test your leadership skills, put you in uncomfortable uh, zones, see how you cope, and, and all that sort of stuff. So as a climber, both of us, we thought that would be fantastic. And we were going to climb Mount Kenya and then move on to Kilimanjaro. If you don't know what Mount Kenya looks like, there's no reason why you should. There's a picture of it. Mount Kenya is the highest mountain in um, Africa. It's, uh, I just think, about 18 and a half, 19,000 feet. It's very nice in the summer, very treacherous uh, in the winter. So Sergeant Ubi, that was my friend, was in charge of route planning. And I was in charge of uh, equipment and logistics for the expedition. There's a picture of me with the equipment, I think, with quite a lot more hair. But that was my job. I was in charge of, of all that stuff. It took us three days to get to base camp. Uh, there's a picture with a hut. That's at 17,000 feet. It takes three days to get up there, and you're trying to acclimatize um, when you get there before you hit the summit of 18,000 feet, and we decided when we got to the base camp to do a couple of days of climatization, walking around, unpacking the kit, getting it all ready. We had a lot of stuff with us, 
But we realized then that we were getting restless, or the guys were getting restless. So what means Scooby, that was his nickname, it was Sergeant Ubi, what we called him Scooby-Doo, so his nickname was Scooby. What we decided to do was to split the group into, into two, so he would have five soldiers and I would have five soldiers, and he would take five off just to the west of where we were, the base camp, and do some uh, rock climbing, gentle rock climbing, get your fingers if anyone's climbed, get them a little bit hardened, get used to the, the equipment, get used to the ropes, working as a team, that sort of thing. And I would take the other five and go to a mountain that was very near, not far at all, called Mount Liana, which was about 16,000 feet. And I would climb that and do some snow and ice climbing. And I think there's a, a picture coming up as of on the top of that, which was brilliant. That's us on the top of Mount Liana. And it took us half a day to get there and half a day to get back. We'd arranged when we split to be back at base camp for about 1,600 hours, about 4 o'clock which would give us loads of time. We finished the climb, we had a load of fun, we got back down. I got to the base camp in the time we should have at four o'clock, and I was really surprised that um, Scooby wasn't there with his group of soldiers, because basically his was the easiest task, just playing around on a rock. Mine was quite challenging, so I thought he'd be back before me. When I got back, he, he wasn't there. So while we were having um, a cup of tea, and just relaxing and waiting for him, I thought I heard a yell or a scream in the direction where he was supposed to be messing around. And, and as I picked a pair of binoculars up to look at where the scream, where the noise was, I thought I saw something fall. But I wasn't sure. It could have been a bird passing through the lens or, or something. But I heard a noise. And what I did, I grabbed the medic. One of the lads was trained as a medic. I grabbed him, and we tried to run to the area. You can't really run at 17,000 feet if you've ever been at altitude. You can walk with great difficulty. But as fast as we could, we headed for the, for the area where I'd heard this noise and where I thought I'd saw someone fall. When I got there, someone had fallen. It was Scooby, my friend. He'd fallen around about 800 feet off the mountain and um, hit a rock on the way down and uh, it was a bit of a mess. And I tried as best I could to, to help him. And I'd been there about five minutes with him and, and the, the soldier, the medic, tapped me on the shoulder and said, boss, I, I think he's dead. That was quite traumatic as you can imagine, but what I did next shocked me. I heard this screaming of the, of the soldiers. They were stuck halfway up the mountain, about 400 feet on a ledge. And I didn't know what to do. So it was possibly sheer panic or uh, adrenaline or whatever it was. I grabbed the kit off Scooby's body, his harness and some equipment that he had, and a rope threw it over my shoulder and instinctively started to, to climb. And the rock face was pretty sheer where he'd fallen or the base of where he'd fallen. It was getting dark. It gets dark quite early in, on Mount Kenya. Uh, it was cold. It was starting to get nighttime. And it was starting to, to rain as well. And I started to climb this rock. And in no time at all, really, or it felt like that, I was on a ledge about 400 feet up next to where the noise was coming from, where the men was. When I realized at that point that two things I was missing. One, 
I didn't have the right equipment with me because I could hear the other five soldiers, but there was um, an outcrop, a big piece of rock climbing, we would call it a nose, which was sticking out. So I couldn't get round. So I realized I didn't have the right equipment. I needed some pitons, which are small little spiky pieces of metal. And you, you bang them in a crack with a hammer. You put a carabiner through it. You put a rope, and you can go anywhere you want with those things. I didn't have any, and I didn't have a hammer. The second thing I realized, I was way out of my depth. If you've ever climbed a tree as a kid, going up is really easy. It's the getting down that's tricky. And most accidents on mountains, are never, or they never happen going up. They usually happen coming down. And I realized that I didn't have the right equipment. I couldn't get to the lads, and I was way out of my depth. I tried. I had the rope, and I tried to sort of swing it round. I put a sort of weight on the end of carabiner, and I tried to swing it round this nose, but it kept coming back to me. And all the time, I could hear the lads saying, Sarge, Sarge, what's happened to Scooby? Is he all right? You know, you're going to get us off. Come on, get... It was an awful time, actually. And at that point, when I realized I was out of my depth, I was absolutely terrified. I couldn't get them off. It's the part in the movies that you don't see when, when the hero or the heroine realizes it ain't going to work. And I started to cry. I leaned into the rock face because I was terrified of falling off that ledge. The rain was coming down my face. I was getting absolutely cold with fear and anxiety. And I put my face on the rock, and I prayed a desperate prayer. I said, God, if you're here, don't let me die. And as I finished those words, as God is my witness, I felt a tap on my right shoulder. I won't tell you exactly what I said at the time, because if you can imagine being 400 foot up in that sort of state, on a ledge, getting dark, and then someone taps you on the shoulder... It frightened the life out of me. As I turned to, to my right, I saw this man, and I can see his face now. He was kind of tanned, long hair, very lean, like a climber, had a singlet on, and these amazing eyes that were just staring at me and smiling. He didn't say a word to me at all. He just pushed me more into the rock face. He took off his belt two pitons, banged one one side of me, banged one the other side of me, put a, 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 a rope across, a strap, pulled it tight and fixed it, and that secured me into the, into the mountain. I couldn't move. He then just smiled and walked around me and then disappeared off, pitoning himself around this nose, this overhang, and went round to the other side. He lowered the five soldiers off to the ground by abseiling them one at a time with the rope, and then he came back round, the nose, the overhang, came to me, unhooked my strap, and just pointed down to me, and put a rope through a carabiner which I had on my harness, and abseiled me down to the ground. When we got down there, or when I got down there, I heard what happened. It was getting quite late, and, and Scooby had... Um, wanted to, to get off the mountain with the five um, soldiers he was with. Really, he should have stayed there the night, camped out and walked off in the morning when it was light. But what he wanted to do was abseil them off. But he only had a 400-foot rope. It's an 800-foot drop approximately. So what he had to do was a multi-pitch abseil. 
which is really he only uses any climbers in it in a, in a state of emergency. And what he'd done, he'd lowered the lads down 400 feet on the rope to a ledge, secured them there, got them happy, pulled the rope back up, and then put the rope around the flake of rock so he could recover it, abseil down to the ledge, pull the rope, and then you start again. That's what you do, multi-pitch abseil. He'd put the rope around the flake, leaned back, and the flake had come off. And obviously, he'd fallen with the rope and everything, and that's why I had his equipment uh, at the bottom. When we got um, down to the bottom, and obviously, they'd seen Scooby um, was dead, and, and we, we talked about that a little bit. They were all a bit shaken up, the young lads. Uh, they said to me, Sarge, it's a good job you got that climber. I said, I, I didn't get the climber. I said, did he talk to you? They went, no, they, he just abseiled us off and then disappeared back around the nose to you. And we couldn't find him. Absolutely disappeared into thin air. Nowhere. So when we, we left Scooby's body there, because it was too difficult to get him down to that base camp, we walked back down, and I got on the radio straight away. And I, I radioed through to the base camp, which was at Kahal Barracks in, in, in Nairobi. And I asked if they knew if anyone else was on the mountain. Now, I asked that because you had to have a certificate and you had to pay, and it had to be a military organization at that time to get on the mountain. It's a bit like Everest. You just can't wander up. And there was no one else. We were the only one. The third battalion, Royal Green Jackets, were the only one that had the stamp and the certificate. And I said, is there any civilian organizations, lone climbers? I went, nobody. Absolutely nobody was on that mountain at that time. The next morning, we went back up, climbed back up to get where Scooby was. He was in a body bag by then. We stretched him back down to, to that hut that you saw. And then a helicopter uh, came from the Air Corps, picked the body up and took him back to Kahal Barracks, and we ended up repatriating him back to, to the UK. How did that experience uh, affect me? I'd like to tell you that after that near-death experience, I dropped to my knees, I prayed a mighty prayer, and I thanked God for saving my life, and I dedicated the rest of my life to him to do whatever he wanted me to do and go wherever he wanted me to go. Not quite. When I got home and all this stuff was sorted out and we did what we had to do, I, got, I did have a bit of an epiphany. I did have a bit of a, a moment. I remember thinking there were two things in my life that I'd always wanted and never been able to afford them. And I thought, what the heck? I've just lost a close friend in quite a traumatic way. I was slightly traumatized. I didn't know what to do. Life's short. Anything could happen at any time. I was going to get these two things that would really help me with this trauma and this pain. So I went out and got them. One thing I'd always wanted all my life was a really expensive diving watch. So I bought that. And the other thing I'd always wanted all my life was a very expensive leather flying jacket. Those were the things that I thought would help me with my trauma and get me through this difficult situation in my life. I was very shallow at the time, as you can imagine. A little bit more depth now. But those were the two things that I wanted. But isn't that what we do? When we get in a, in a position of fear or anxiety or trouble, don't we throw material things at it? And maybe not material, maybe relationships, maybe both of them, or maybe just stuff. We throw it at it 
to make it better. And it doesn't always do that. Even after that experience on, on that mountain, which you can imagine was, was an experience, it still took me another three years before I gave my life to Christ. Three years of searching, of looking, of more trauma, of more pain, of more hassle, until I surrendered. Someone offered me an alpha leaflet, the ones that we've got here. And I thought, what the heck? I've been in the army nearly 17 years. I've done a course on everything you can possibly think of. I'll do a course on God and see what happens. Why, why did it take me so long from that experience to, to, to coming to Christ and, and becoming a Christian? I've often wondered why. And I think I know. I wasn't ready. God was ready. But I wasn't ready at the time. There were still a few things I had to go through. But the scriptures are really encouraging. And I found this scripture a few years ago. And, and I hadn't seen it before. It's in Hebrews 1, verse 14. And it says this. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Not sent to be with those who are Christians and got it all correct and in church and everything. Those who will inherit salvation. Those who will be saved eventually. I wasn't ready, but God was ready. But through his grace, he waits. Through his love, he waits until we're ready. And then gently encamps around us and circles us and gives us a little nudge. Robbie William, in that song, if it continues, said, Salvation makes their wings unfold. In my mountaintop experience, I really think I'd tried to help those soldiers. I wasn't equipped. It was completely out of my comfort zone. I didn't have the skill set to do any of that, and I couldn't fix it on my own. Someone came along, more skilled, took control of the situation, told me what to do by pushing me into the rock, and got me off that mountain safely. And God will do that. He will draw alongside you and support you as he did me in that experience. But sometimes we don't see him. Sometimes he's right next to us and we miss him or we're not ready or we know he's there and we ignore him. And God can come in so many disguises. Always entertain strangers for in so doing, some have entertained angels and not known it. So it's on that ledge that my journey of salvation began, but it took another three years for me to get there. So if you're feeling that you're, you're on that sort of ledge, that analogy, feeling out of your depth, whatever you might be going through now, this might be your tap on the moment shoulder where God wants to get your attention. You have to hope that God is there. And it is, just that we don't believe that sometimes for lots of reasons. He will turn up if you ask him. And he'll come in whatever form he chooses, how he chooses, or when he chooses, and how he decides. All we have to be is open to the possibility that he might be there. And you don't have to be up halfway up a mountain on a 7 8 inch ledge like I was to, to do that. You could be at the kitchen sink at school, at university, at work, at home, in church, 
or, or even sat here now. It doesn't have to be as dramatic as mine one. Sometimes we just need rescuing, and sometimes we're in a place where we can rescue others. For me, I was scared out of my depth, and I called to him, even though I didn't know him, and he answered me. And I want to finish with this psalm, these words. Psalm 34. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. In 1994, through attending that uh, Alpha course, my life was dramatically changed. I did the Alpha. More importantly, I met Jesus, and I entered into that plan that God had for my life. A good and perfect plan, a plan to prosper me, prosper me and not to harm me, a plan to give me hope and a future. So I wanted to leave you with this thought to ponder, this scripture again. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You just never know when it's time for your adventure to begin. Can we pray? Father, thank you for these scriptures. Thank you that you encamp around us. Thank you that your presence is everywhere. And sometimes, for whatever reason, we just miss you or walk by you. And Lord, I just pray that you would help all of us know the love that you have for every single one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.